The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. From the unusual to the extraordinary, your website stands out when you build it with Squarespace. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Richard Lee. This week we're exploring how the human adventure is powered by the fear of death with the psychologist Sheldon Solomon. But first, we're taking flight with one of science fiction's most garlanded literary explorers, Kim Stanley Robinson. Robinson's latest adventure, Aurora, imagines a starship with a crew of 2,000 on a 200-year-long trip to Tau Ceti, a star system 11.9 light-years from Earth. He charts the struggles of the voyage and examines how the settlers' fate is determined by the iron laws of momentum, entropy and evolution. When I spoke to Robinson down the line from a dry and dusty California, I began by asking him why he decided to write a Generation Starship novel. Well, I've been doing science fiction now for 40 years, and I've been fairly conservative in terms of what I wrote about. Usually uh, realistic stuff in the next couple hundred of years, and within the solar system. That's been my story space. But Always around the edges of it is the rest of the galaxy. And a lot of science fiction, often called space opera, is about humanity going out into the galaxy. And there's a very common story in science fiction, but also it's a common idea in our culture that humanity is somehow destined for the stars, that we're going to inhabit the rest of the galaxy. And I got more and more skeptical of that idea, and it occurred to me that there was a new story that could be told, which is... If we were to really try this and do more than just talk about it, what would it be like? How would it work and how would it feel? And I thought I had some a new story to tell. And there's also new findings from the world of science that um, made me think that it was going to be a lot more difficult than we'd ever conceptualized before. So that too made a good story. So, I mean, this was basically taking your hard-edged look at what science can do that you've been using for the last, as you say, 40 years in kind of near future, and you've been applying that a little further out. Yes, that's right. And I, I would like to add that if I get an idea for a story that's a, a little crazy and it fits within the science fiction tradition, like a time travel story, then I'll do that. But obviously I have a habit of mind of, uh, I can tell at this point, of examining the more realistic stories because they think they're the more interesting ones. Hmm. The bulk of the novel is taken up with a narrative account constructed by the ship's quantum computer that includes all the important particulars as the ship's engineer requires. Well, what was it like writing as an AI? <laughs> well, it was hard. Um, I have read some commentators saying that Robinson writing like an AI is no stretch at all. Um, <laughs> so... Um, um, that made me laugh, and I thought, well, maybe I did have an advantage there, always trying for precision and not being a particularly lyrical person, I guess you might say. But it, still, it was really hard because I was trying to think about algorithms and what a quantum computer might really be like if it had stupendously fast processing power, which it would, but also only a limited understanding because it depends crucially on the human programming that it got. So uh, it had to be different than a consciousness, and I wanted the reader at every point to be thinking, this is a, a series of algorithms trying to figure things out that isn't quite on top of things. 
So it, I wanted to keep it a little bit inhuman, but we anthropomorphize so quickly that any computer that's doing a fairly good job, we will quickly leap to think that there's a consciousness there. And it also seemed to me that the computer itself would begin to wonder if it was conscious in the same way humans were, that just as an ordinary question of operations. So it was a rabbit hole that I could have fallen into and never come out of, and it was actually a perpetual problem to make sure that I kept the focus on the story proper. But um, it was the best thing that happened for me in terms of writing the story, was deciding to make the AI and the narrator. 2,122 people are living in a multi-generational starship headed for Tau Ceti, 11.9 light years from Earth. The ship is made of two rings or toruses attached by spokes to a central spine. The spine is 10 kilometers long. Each torus is made of 12 cylinders. Each cylinder is 4 kilometers long and contains within it a particular specific Terran ecosystem. The starship's voyage began in the common era year 2545. The ship's voyage has now lasted 159 years and 119 days. For most of that time, the ship has been moving relative to the local background at approximately one-tenth the speed of light. Thus, about 108 million kilometers per hour, or 30,000 kilometers per second. This velocity means the ship cannot run into anything substantial in the interstellar medium without catastrophic results, as has been demonstrated. The magnetic field clearing the space ahead of the ship as it progresses is therefore one of many identified criticalities in the ship's successful long-term function. Every identified criticality in the ship was required to have at least one backup system, adding considerably to the ship's overall mass. The two biome rings each contain 10% of the ship's mass. The spine contains 4%. The remaining 76% of the mass consists of the fuel now being used to decelerate the ship as it approaches the Tau Ceti system. As every increase in the dry mass of the ship required a proportionally larger increase in the mass of fuel needed to slow the ship down on arrival, ship had to be as light as possible while still supporting its mission. Ships designed thus based on solar system's asteroid terraria, with asteroidal mass largely replaced by decelerant fuel. During most of the voyage, this fuel was deployed as cladding around the toruses and spine. The deceleration is being accomplished by the frequent rapid fusion explosion of small pellets of deuterium and helium-3 fuel in a rocket engine at the bow of the ship. These explosions exert a retarding force on the ship equivalent to 0.005 g. The deceleration will therefore be complete in just under 20 years. The presence of printers capable of manufacturing most component parts of the ship and feedstocks large enough to supply multiple copies of every critical component tended to reduce the ship's designer's apprehension of what a criticality really was. That only became apparent later. How to decide how to sequence information in a narrative account? Many elements in a complex situation are simultaneously relevant. An unsolvable problem. Sentences linear reality synchronous. Both, however, are temporal. Take one thing at a time, one after the next. Devise a prioritizing algorithm, if possible. Ship was accelerated toward where Tau Ceti would be at the time of ship's arrival at it, meaning 170 years after launch. It might have been good to have the ability to adjust course en route, but ship, in fact, has very little of this. Ship was accelerated first by an electromagnetic scissors field off Titan, in which two strong magnetic fields held the ship between them, and when the fields were brought across each other, 
The ship was briefly projected at an accelerative force equivalent to 10 Gs. Five human passengers died during this acceleration. After that, a powerful laser beam originating near Saturn struck a capture plate at the stern of the ship's spine, accelerating the ship over 60 years to its full speed. The ship's current deceleration has caused problems with which Devi is still dealing. Other problems will soon follow, resulting from the ship's arrival in the Tau Ceti system. Devi, ship, I said, make it a narrative. Make an account. Tell the story. Ship, trying. Tau Ceti is a G-type star, a solar analog, but not a solar twin, with 78% of Sol's mass, 55% of its luminosity, and 28% of its metallicity. It has a planetary system of 10 planets. Planets B through F were discovered by telescope, G through K, much smaller, by probes passing through the system in 2476. Planet E's orbit is 0.55 AU. It has a mass 3.58 times the mass of Earth, thus one of the informal class called Large Earth. It has a single moon which has 0.83 times the mass of Earth. E and E's moon receive 1.7 times Earth's insulation. This is considered within the inside border of the so-called habitable zone, meaning the zone where liquid H2O is common. Both planet and moon have Earth analog atmospheres. Ship is on course to rendezvous with planet E, then go into orbit around E's moon. Ship has on board 24 landers, four already fueled to return to the ship from the moon's surface. The rest have the engines to return to the ship, but not the fuel, which is to be manufactured from water or other volatiles on the surface of E's moon. Devi, ship, get to the point. Ship, there are many points. How sequence simultaneously relevant information? How decide what is important? Need prioritizing algorithm. Devi, use subordination to help with the sequencing. I've heard that could be very useful. Also, you're supposed to use metaphors to make things clearer or more vivid or something. I don't know. I'm not much for writing myself. You're going to have to figure it out by doing it. Ship. Trying. Subordinating conjunctions can be simple conjunctions, whenever, nevertheless, whereas. Conjunctive groups, as though, even if. And complex conjunctions, in the event that, as soon as. Lists of subordinating clauses are available. The logical relationship of new information to what came before can be made clear by a subordinating clause, thus facilitating both composition and comprehension. Now, consequently, as a result, we are getting somewhere. The novel also puts scientists at the core. It's got a faith in science and engineering to the point where the ship's engineer, Devi, suggests that to survive, they're all going to have to do science, even the ones who aren't good at it, who can't. Is this kind of straightforward faith in science and technology, something that you share? I am a big uh, believer in the power of science to um, order our lives in the best possible way. So in that sense, I'm a kind of a science supporter, yes. But there are limits, and also science itself is modest in that it tries to figure out the world and how to operate it, but it doesn't really try to figure out what we should do. It stays out of... Um, what you might call moral or philosophical questions. So it's never enough. Science is not enough. And the problem inside a starship, you've only got 2,000 people, say, in this particular thought experiment. The science fiction writer Charles Strauss has estimated that keeping a modern civilization going 
might require as much as 100 million people. So with 2,000 people, you're going to have to rely on tech support from afar, and the farther you get from the solar system, the more late it becomes, so that by the time my story begins, the news they're getting from the solar system is literally 10 years old. So essentially, you're cast on your own resources and on your library bank and on your computers, and so everybody it would be forced by the situation to get good at something hard. And not everybody would be capable or want to. And so you get a situation where even if the, the ship is a direct democracy, where all 2,000 people are equally politically responsible and powerful, nevertheless, the situation itself is totalitarian. And the requirements on people would be you might say dystopian in some ways, but in any case, extremely rigorous. There would be population control limits, there would be occupational requirements as to what people would do. People might have to have primary and secondary layers of expertise and jobs. The more I thought about it, the more it began to seem like a, a rather torturous situation. The, the novel is, is stuffed full of detailed scientific and technological information, even to the point where you cut a bit of it in the reading you've just done for us. Uh, there's information about island evolution, about metal fatigue, about gravity-assisted deceleration. You're, you're not a scientist by training, are you? How did you go about acquiring all this detailed scientific knowledge? That's true. I'm an English major, and it's been the 40 years of writing science fiction that has given me what scientific literacy I have. Um, it's I, um, through that I, period of writing. Yes, and each project adds to the next in a kind of cumulative way. Um, writing the Mars novels required um, learning about a wide variety of subjects. And then I've been subscribing to Science News, which is a periodical for the lay person that comes every couple of weeks and tells you in lay terms what's happened in the sciences in, that, in the previous couple of weeks. Well, that's a tremendous education, and I really think everybody ought to read that magazine because the sciences are fundamental to civilization right now, and the more you know, the better off you are at making your political decisions and your life decisions. So, And the rest of it is research and a matter simply of rhetoric. Everybody knows what this is like. You study for a test, you take the test, afterwards you forget half of what you learned, or more. So I know what a scene needs after I give it a first draft try, and then I research like crazy to uh, support that scene better, and then I write it up, and afterwards, who knows how much sticks. You're very, you were saying earlier, you're very kind of careful with the science of today, even in this novel, which is a little further out. There's only minimal extensions of early 21st century science. There's a kind of functioning quantum computer. There's some printers to manufacture the machinery they need along the way. There's algae to grow food and so on. But there's no nanomachines. There's no smart spacesuits. There's no exotic physics. This standard model of physics is still standard, as the ship says. What's the attraction of this writing mostly within this 21st century technology? Well, I think it makes for more interesting stories because then you have uh, the test of the real. Um, I think one of the things literature is here to do is to give us back reality in its totality in a kind of gestalt form. So we read fiction in order to uh, get a sense of the whole and what it means. Well, the more you jump off into worlds of fantasy and things that people know to be impossible by current understanding the more that story becomes a kind of extended metaphor with a less impact on one's uh, reality principle. So although I'm a science fiction writer, I'm also um, by uh, natural uh, predilection a kind of realist. And I think I do science fiction because I feel like if you're going to write realism about our time, science fiction is simply the best 
uh, genre to do it in because we're living in a big science fiction novel now that we all co-write together. So you write domestic realism and you've trapped yourself into a tiny little portion of a much larger reality. You write science fiction and you're actually writing about the reality that we're truly in and that's what novels ought to do. You're much bolder with the laws of fiction, if you will. You've got this 350-page experiment in constructing this plausible narrative voice as you go along. You've got all these technical details, and you've got the story, which is, as one of your characters suggests, is finished on page 206. Is this partly because you're more comfortable with your kind of literary expertise? Oh, yes. That, thank you for that. It's definitely true. Um, fiction is the place to be bold. It's a, a space of free play, and whatever is interesting is what you can make interesting. And so uh, creating meaning is a tricky thing, and I've been writing novels for a long time now, and I feel, although I can't express to you how to do it, uh, it seems that it must be true by the results that I know how to do it, and I'm interested in different kinds of narrators. So now, uh, narrators for me are very important characters. I don't narrate in my own voice. I'm not interested in what I think um, once I get a story idea, then I try to follow out the ramifications of it, which includes a narrator that's appropriate for telling that story and, and a form that's appropriate for that idea. And so it's a very marvelous game because it seems to me that the stakes are high, that it's how we create meaning, but there's a playfulness involved in it too. And uh, I'm really having a lot of fun is what it comes down to. So much of SF is written as a kind of desperate hope for the future. I mean, you were talking earlier about this idea that humanity will bestride the stars that we're kind of going to leave the earth behind it's almost like written out of fear of of species extinction fear of death is are you suspicious of that kind of hopeful science fiction well i'm suspicious of this fear of death creating a, a species immortality in our minds to comfort ourselves for sure i don't think that's right it's a category error we're a living biological species and the universe itself is mortal so thinking about immortality or transcendence within history these are avoidances. And as you say, a fear of death that is expressed out by saying, well, but I individually apparently have to die, but if the species doesn't die, then it's going to be okay, and therefore we, humanity will be immortal by covering the entire galaxy. These are religious notions, I guess, but they're, they're not quite congruent with the reality that we're in. Science fiction is always really good on time. Um, it, it makes you think history. It makes you think futurity. It makes you plan your present with the idea that it's going to make a future that's either good or bad. So I am a science fiction patriot and think science fiction has been excellent for making readers think about time. But it has been pretty bad on space. The galaxy is just way bigger than we're used to thinking because our stories have often had us zipping about in the galaxy as if that were possible. And I don't think it's possible. So it's a story that needs to be told because what it does is return our vision to Earth itself. If Earth is our only home, if it's the only planet that humanity can ever be healthy on, maybe we will engage more seriously in the project of taking care of it and creating a civilization that will last over the long haul in a sustainable balance with the biophysical infrastructure, as some people would call it, which is simply to say Earth's living texture that we're just one little part of. So the starship idea is probably a mistake, and I thought that was worth saying. And also exploring in detail so that you get the thick texture of it. You get how it feels. 
but it's also because you're working at the realm of ideas. This this myth of the exploration, this this death-defying myth of the exploration of the stars, is such a kind of powerful idea. Is that is that why you had to write this as a novel rather than as a polemic or a feature, an argument? Yes. Well, I'm a novelist, and so to me, the ideas that seem interesting enough are the ones that could serve as the basis for a novel. It takes a long story to unpack something as complicated as this uh, idea and to refute the common notion that it would be easy or that it's our destiny or fate. The, The idea itself is only a couple centuries old at the most, and it could be one of the accidents, one of the wrong ideas of the 19th century. Um, it's definitely worth exploring, and I think it makes for a good story. So what do we need to do? What, is, what, what do we do from here? Do we need to look this fate, this death, as it were, in the eye and accept the dangers of environmental collapse and get on with doing something about it here? Yes, I, I think that would be the way to go. Uh, the distinction I would like to make is the solar system is our neighborhood. And we can get to everything in our solar system robotically and maybe with humans and explore it. And that's useful work that teaches us more about Earth and taking care of Earth. It's also exciting and beautiful. It's one of the greatest things humanity has done. So I'm a big fan of the exploration of the solar system, of space science in general. And I agree with those who say, you know, space science is an Earth science because Earth is just another planet in this solar system and we need to take care of it. So... All good there. But then the stars, what I want to point out is that when a quantitative difference is big enough, it becomes a qualitative difference. And the distance from sun to the earth, if it were reduced to one meter, so an astronomical unit being uh, reduced to one meter, then the distance to Tau Ceti would be 800 kilometers. And that's one of the nearest stars. So That means that the other stars, which we can see, which we can study, which we can learn quite a bit about indirectly by way of astronomy, we probably can't get there ourselves. It's worth making that point just to return our attention to the stuff that really matters. We're in a kind of a civilizational emergency. We've got a couple centuries where we really need to focus on getting into a sustainable technology and population level, et cetera, et cetera. All that is quite interesting and beautiful work in itself. So I just wanted to make that point in a story that drives it home with some detail and some lived texture. It's worth pointing out that the people in a starship wouldn't have chosen to go. Their uh, first generation on on one of these slow starships, which are the only kind that are really possible, and of course are already extremely fast, that generation will die. There will be generations born and died on the ship. And then when they arrive at a new planetary system, that planetary system will either be alive, in which case it's a horrible problem, or else it'll be dead, in which case you have to terraform it. And that's a really long-term project and probably not survivable. So the people that we send off in a starship, if we were ever to do such a thing, would be putting them into a very wicked fate. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. From the unusual to the extraordinary, your website stands out when you build it with Squarespace. Their designer templates let you easily create a unique and beautiful website that looks perfect on any device. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, head to squarespace.com guardian. Tales of galactic conquest are only the latest in a series of stories human beings have told themselves in the face of the dangers that surround us every day. According to the psychologist, Sheldon Solomon, 
The fear of death these stories address is at the heart of virtually all human affairs, an insight that has been almost a commonplace for thousands of years. But Solomon, along with fellow experimental psychologists Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pashinsky, has spent most of his career putting this ancient wisdom to the test. When he came into the studio, he began by reading an account of the first experiment he and his colleagues devised to examine how reminding people of the inevitable fact of mortality changed their behaviour in a measurable fashion. Reviewing the prostitute's case and setting her bail was all part of the day's work for Judge Garner. He came into work in the morning and sat down in his chambers to look over the files recording the usual misbehavior committed during the previous night, drunk driving, shoplifting, disorderly conduct. Then he opened the file containing the prosecutor's notes for the case of one Carol Ann Dennis. The police citation and the prosecutor's report noted that the 25-year-old woman had been arrested a little after 9.30 p.m. on a stretch of the Miracle Mile. Dennis, dressed in short shorts, high heels, and a halter top, had stood on the street corner soliciting Johns. A man in his 30s had driven up in a pickup truck and pulled over, rolling down the window. Neither of them saw the unmarked police car lurking down the street. According to the report, Dennis was handcuffed and helped into the back of the police car. She was then carted off to the city jail and charged with soliciting for acts of prostitution. Because she couldn't verify a permanent address, she was waiting to be released on bond. Judge Garner closed the file and sighed. He'd seen cases like this before. The typical bail for this type of infraction at that time was $50. Then he turned to another folder which contained some personality questionnaires that a fellow judge had asked him to fill out for his girlfriend who was helping her professor with an academic study on personality, attitudes, and bond decisions. One of the questionnaires was a two-question mortality attitudes personality survey. First, we asked the judge to please briefly describe the emotions that the thought of your own death arouses in you. I don't think about it much, but I guess I would feel very sad for my family who would miss me, he wrote. Next, we asked the judge to jot down as specifically as you can what you think will happen to you as you physically die and once you are physically dead. He wrote, I feel that I will enter a tunnel of pain and then release into the light. I will notice that my body will be buried and eventually decay under the earth but my soul will rise up to heaven where I will meet my Savior. After completing a few more questions, the judge chatted with his clerk for a few minutes, then returned to his chambers to resume his work. How did Judge Garner and the other judges who'd thought about their own mortality before setting Carol Ann Dennis's bond respond? The judges in the control group who did not complete the survey imposed the average bond of $50. However, the judges reminded of their death hammered Carol Ann, who, by the way, was not a real person, with a far more punitive bond, on average $455, more than nine times the typical tab. The scales of justice were tipped, if not toppled, by the judges who had pondered their demise. Judges are supposed to be supremely rational experts who gauge cases based on the facts. And indeed, the judges insisted that answering some questions about death 
could not possibly have had any effect on their legal pronouncements. How then could a brief reminder of death so radically and without their knowing it alter their decisions? When we set up the experiment, we figured that judges, generally speaking, were people who had pretty strong views of right and wrong to begin with, and we thought that Carol Ann Dennis's behavior would offend their moral sensibilities. The results showed that the judges who thought about their own mortality reacted by trying to do the right thing as prescribed by their culture. Accordingly, they upheld the law more vigorously than their colleagues who were not reminded of death. By setting an extremely high bond for the alleged prostitute, they ensured that she would show up for trial to receive not just a mere slap on the wrist, but also the punishment she deserved for her moral transgression. Reminders of death don't just provoke more negative reactions to those who fail to live up to our values. They also spawn more positive responses to people who uphold them. In one study, death reminders tripled the monetary reward people recommended for someone who reported a dangerous criminal to the police. And the effects of death reminders aren't limited to those we judge to be immoral or noble. They also increase our general desire to fortify our faith in the correctness of our beliefs and the goodness of our culture. So after being reminded of death, we react generously to anyone or anything that reinforces our cherished beliefs and reject anyone or anything that calls those beliefs into question. The idea that our knowledge of mortality is an important factor in human life could be found in ancient Buddhist texts, in Socrates, Hegel, Kierkegaard and Freud. So what's different about the work you've been doing for the last 25 years? Well, I, I think that's a great question. These ideas have been, you know, literally hovering in the theological and philosophical mist uh, for eons. And they were crystallized, at least for us, when Ernest Becker in 1973 won a Pulitzer Prize for the book The Denial of Death. Uh, but for the most part, academic psychologists just dismissed it as wild philosophical speculation. And so what we've done for the past 35 years or so... 35 uh, now. Yeah, I think it <laughs> is, sad to admit. Uh, but since the last millennium, Jeff and Tom, my colleagues and I, and uh, now with lots of help from folks around the world, uh, have been designing experiments to produce evidence that appears to be in a tremendous accord with these claims. And so how do these experiments, how do, they, how do you design them? How do they work? Well, they work uh, fairly simply. What we do is to assume uh, that if these claims are correct, if your beliefs about reality serve in part to mitigate death anxiety, then our strategy has always been, well, okay, uh, let's have some people be reminded of their mortality, like the judges in our first study. Uh, and let's have other folks think about something unpleasant but not fatal. And then let's measure their reactions to people who either support their beliefs or who oppose them. And that's not the only way that we remind folks of death. And so sometimes we go outdoors and we stop people either in front of a funeral home or 100 meters to either side. Uh, other times we bring them into the laboratory and we flash the word death on a computer so fast, 28 milliseconds, that you can't even see that you've been exposed to anything. 
And yet what we find is that regardless of how intimations of mortality are aroused, that it has rather profound effects on attitudes and behaviors. Yeah, so I think we've kind of slightly jumped the gun because we've dealt with how the experiments work. But what are the results when you examine them these, in this rigorous ways? What do you discover? Well, it's very good. And uh, so the general tenor of the findings is that people reminded of death uh, will go to extraordinary lengths, even if they're unaware that death is on their minds, to bolster faith in their cultural worldviews and to fortify a sense that they have self-esteem or or value. Uh, In the U.S., when we remind Americans of their mortality, they are more supportive of preemptive chemical, nuclear, and biological attacks against countries who pose no direct threat to us. I mean, you suggest that the experience of 9-11 was very much that Americans suddenly felt death very present in their minds, and so therefore were happy to go on a kind of foreign expedition in order to kill some guys over there. That's correct, absolutely. And without suggesting that this was the sole cause of Americans' reactions, we would argue that the events of 9-11 were constituted a, a a, just a gigantic mortality salience manipulation resulting in enthusiastic support not only uh, for going to war uh, but it also we found in our studies really increased support for President Bush and his policies in Iraq. Uh, this is not all negative though is it? It's not just about that. You're suggesting also that part of the things that make us ourselves, our culture, our validity within that culture, it's also done in order to ward off this fear of death. That's correct. It's not all unilaterally negative. Uh, in fact, what we do argue in the book is that intimations of mortality bring out at times the best in us as well as the most unsavory of human affectations. Yeah, so that the fear of death is responsible for the pyramids, for the Divina Commedia for general theater, all this amazing stuff that humans have done is partly to ward off this fear of death. Yes, we think so. Now, you know, it's a strong claim and, and people of goodwill can and will disagree. Uh, but we argue in the book that when we try to locate, well, how did we get from primates to people, the, the so-called cultural Big Bang where we vaulted, uh, you know, that's a yawning chasm from our ancestors to the way that we are now. And we think it's not a coincidence that at the same time uh, was the sudden appearance of ceremonial grave goods, body adornments, and art as we know it. Uh, so because this, you're, you argue that this self-awareness that makes us so successful as a species, this idea that you can think about yourself and plan for yourself, think about the future differently to kind of just reacting to it, also takes with it this idea that you're going to die at some point. And so you need to deal with that. That's right. It and is. the culture that we all share and our place within that culture is a way of dealing with it. That's spot on. Uh, you know, our argument is that self-consciousness is both exhilarating as well as devastating. It's tremendous to wake up in the morning and to, you know, just wallow in the spontaneous exuberance of life. That's why I like James Joyce in Ulysses in the longest sentence in the history of literature, 50 pages at the end of the book. You know, it starts and ends with the same word, yes. So self-awareness is tremendous and highly adaptive. And yet, if it didn't come with the coincident recognition of mortality, uh, everything would be fine. 
But it did. And once we realized that we will someday die, that we could walk outside and get hit by a bus, and that we're essentially ephemeral animals, no more significant or enduring than lizards or potatoes, well, that's devastating. And our ancestors may literally have expired from anxiety or despair if we didn't very cleverly conjure up culturally constructed visions of reality that give us a sense that we're persons of meaning and that we have value. And that we will persist within this oh, culture. Oh, absolutely. Without that, this would all be for naught. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that struck me was that, I mean, this this extraordinary story you tell in the book about how uh, death was at the, the, the foundation of how cities were made and maybe even of agriculture itself. But I'm wondering kind of what the evidence for that is in comparison to your, your attitudinal studies, which are grounded in these surveys you've done. What's well, the evidence? Yes, very good question. We're on more solid ground. And as experimental psychologists, uh, we believe we've made a very good case uh, based on the way that people behave in the present. And I think we're always a little bit of necessity, more speculative. However, archaeologists now agree uh, that the rather commonsensical idea that people settled down in order to farm is quite wrong. There's now clear evidence that our ancestors began to congregate in villages that became cities at least a thousand years before the existence of agriculture. And what other very able archaeologists have proposed, therefore, is that we originally congregated for religious reasons, not for practical utilitarian ones. And these religious reasons were because of the fear of death, essentially? That, that would be our claim. Okay, okay. I mean, your arguments also seem to slide very straightforwardly from this kind of fear of personal annihilation to arguments about the whole of society being under threat. I mean, is, does it apply at both of those scales just the same? Yes. Uh, we think that, uh, you know, based on Ernest Becker's ideas, he's just saying that uh, the fear of death, is it's the mother load. It, it is literally, he calls it the mainspring of human activity. And he is quite serious when he argues that it influences everything that we do, whether we're aware of it or not, mostly not, and that this pertains not only to our individual behavior, but to the behavior of our ancestors and our societies today. But again, it seems to me that the rigorous work you've done with the surveys on individuals, have you matched that with work in a kind of wider society level? No, not yet. I think that work is yet to be done. That's the next project. Yeah, okay, fine. I I guess this is one of the points at which people who aren't scientists start to have a problem with science because science takes this amazing, extraordinary thing, which is human culture, and it says it's all because of this thing here. Yes. (laughs) And quite right. I I think scientists are rightfully, at times, thought of as being rather rash when they make these bold claims about the nature of reality. And it is hard for an informed public to swallow, nor should they uh, not be skeptical about any claims of this nature. And yet, without in any way trying to put our work in the same breath as the real giants uh, of the Newtons of the world uh, or the Darwins uh, of the world, well, Newton reduced the physical universe to three basic laws. And, And Darwin says, well, you know, I can explain from life form number one 
all the way to people uh, with the theory of evolution by natural selection. And so here we are, in a sense, making the same psychological claims. However, we are not suggesting that fear of death is the only reason why people do things. Rather, what we're trying to argue is that if we don't account for how existential concerns underlie human affairs, that we'll never be able to comprehensively understand them. What happens when our cultural constructs turn back and start to bite us, when the stories that we tell each other, these stories, these religions that we tell each other, these, these other things we tell each other to ward off our fear of death, so like Ragnarok or the rapture or even scientific stories about the sun turning into a red giant or the big rip at the end of the universe. What happens when these stories turn around and tell us that death is coming anyway? Yeah, well, that's when it gets, I think, uh, a, a little difficult uh, in that, uh, yeah, we are occasionally hoisted on the proverbial petard of our own death-denying illusions. And uh, historically, I think there's no shortage of examples where uh, there comes a point where they are no longer credible. They no longer serve their purpose to provide us uh, with a sense that we're valuable individuals in a meaningful universe. And as you put it very well earlier, that we're going to persist over time, either literally or symbolically. And as the philosopher Nietzsche proposed, that's when you have times of historical psychological upheaval and you find people groping uh, for different ways to accomplish these basic universal needs. You know, anything from joining cults to, uh, you know, filling your body with tattoos uh, to becoming rabidly enthusiastic about sports. When I saw that the UK uh, lost by 405 runs in cricket, the people of Oxford were devastated. <laughs> <laughs> but so all these strange things happen because yes. our, our models aren't working anymore. Yes, I would say so. I'm wondering if science fiction, for example, is a modern way, a, a modern set of myths about uh, humanity persisting through the galaxy. I think absolutely. I, I think that's a motif that uh, clearly runs through science fiction. And, and, uh, and of course, then that then translates uh, into life itself. So now we have the cryogenics movement where you can freeze your head until we figure out uh, how to resuscitate you. And, and folks that are saying, oh, yes, let's get rid of our physical carcass. Let's just upload ourselves on a computer cloud. And, and so my joke is that, you know, now when a human does anything, at least in the U.S., it doesn't count till you put it on your Facebook page. Right, but in the future, we may be our Facebook page. So I'm wondering, because it's a kind of science fictional question, so if death is at some sense at the root of human culture, what happens when you get really good at medicine? Ooh, well, that's a, an interesting point. And, and uh, what some people argue, and we wrestle with this uh, notion all the time, is that, you know, medicine, a good thing. Uh, I mean, I think all of us, many of us, as a statistic, uh, if you're older than 30 or so, uh, um, you know, most of us would be dead uh, <laughs> do pretty in, well. in the old days. <laughs> and uh, I certainly have no objection to uh, medical techniques that have extended and enhanced our lives. On the other hand, there comes a point uh, where medicine itself, I would argue, is a death-denying fetish. In the U.S., we spend 
over half of uh, health care dollars are expended in the last six months of life, uh, often to extend someone's life in a not particularly high-quality way for a matter of weeks or days. And that's when I think it becomes tragic and unfortunate. Uh, yeah, but I mean, again, I imagine if the driver in some sense of human culture is this fear, then if the fear is removed, what happens to human culture? Oh, good point. And I, and I think, wow, that'd be one of these questions if I could answer it. You know, I'd be chugging <laughs> rum out of a coconut with my Nobel Prize uh, uh, on the beach. Um, I think we need to see what would happen because I don't think death anxiety is ever going to go away. And I'm not sure that it should, because as a lot of theologians and philosophers and novelists have pointed out, you know, it's it's when we're able to soberly recognize our finitude, that really makes life sweeter, and it brings the best out in us. And so our view is that what we need to do is to stop repressing death anxiety, stop burying it under the psychological bushes where it then bears malignant fruit, you know, in the form of hating people who are different, you know, being preoccupied with shopping, you know, drinking and smoking ourselves into a stupor. And so... Our hope is not that culture will disappear, but that it will veer in even a slightly more benign or benevolent direction. The Worm at the Core is published in the UK by Alan Lane, while Aurora is published by Orbit. Thanks to Sheldon Solomon and Kim Stanley Robinson. Next week we'll be revisiting a classic as we investigate John Buchan's 39 Steps. You can find more literary discussion on the Guardian Books website or via SoundCloud or on iTunes or even on your shiny smartphone's podcast app. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. From me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Eva Krisiak, see you next time. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.